0: We're continuing in our series that we've been in around Easter, and uh, the series is The Answer, where we are reminding ourselves of where the answer for everything we believe, we say we believe, all the reason for our hope, the answer for all of that, and it's found in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're told in 1 Peter that we are to all be ready to give an answer for the reason for the hope that we have to everyone that asks us. And so what we want to do as believers is live in a way that makes people curious about what is different about us. And then we can point them to the answer, which is the Lord Jesus, crucified for us, but, but not defeated by death. He rose victorious, and he gives that victory to us. That's what our focus has been and what we're continuing to focus on as we go forward uh, in the series And in a 1948 speech, Winston Churchill said, those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. If you have, like I have, had the privilege of having Mr. Cuthbert, Steve Cuthbert, as a history teacher, you've probably heard that many times. Uh, I know that he agrees with that statement. I think most of us do. And that statement is obviously true, But history's effect on us isn't limited to the kind of negative angle that statement takes, Uh, that warning. You know, it's kind of a negative thing. And, And history, it's not limited to that in its effect. The past constantly affects our present as well as our future. I think we would all agree with that. It's constantly affecting our present and our, our future. Um, and it does this in a lot of good ways. It, it's not all negative. It's not all bad in terms of history's effect. There's a lot of good things that our past brings into our present and then makes way for our future. And that's definitely true of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The effects that it provides are two sides of the same coin. For the Christian, the resurrection is a now and not yet reality of hope. It's like one of the lines from the hymn that I'm sure most, if not all of you know, Great is Thy Faithfulness. One of the lines of that great song says, Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. That is what the resurrection provides. We talked about the resurrection a great deal, obviously, last week with it being Easter. And I ended that message by referring to another song, Because He Lives. The reality of, the, of what is expressed in that song, Because He, Jesus, lives, I can face tomorrow. The dual reality of hope. That's what we're going to focus on in the final two messages of this current series, and today we'll be specifically answering and focusing on why the resurrection matters now. The resurrection happened. It's fact. It's historical fact. Even skeptics and and cynics have a really, really, really hard time logically showing Uh, why the resurrection didn't happen. The evidence is overwhelming and has been from the very beginning. We looked at last week at how Paul in 1 Corinthians brings up the fact that over 500 eyewitnesses at the same time saw and talked with and and were were ministered to by the risen, resurrected Christ. We said you can't get even two people to agree on one thing down to the, the smallest detail. There's usually differences. hard to get stories to corroborate, right? 500 witnesses. We saw cowering, fearful disciples become pillars and and strengths of the, the first church. Why did they go from doubting and despairing to being the leaders of the church, promoting the fact of the resurrection to the point of death if it didn't happen? So it happened. It's absolute fact. There is not a tomb you can go to and honor a buried teacher known as Jesus. It's an empty tomb because we serve and we have a resurrected Savior and King, not a buried or memorialized teacher. It's absolute fact. But the question is, why did what happened then matter now? Why does what happened then affect my today? my now. So that's where we're going to be today together. Before we look at God's Word, would you bow with me? Commit this time your hearts to the Lord. Father, we come to you needy. We've always been needy. That's why you sent your son Jesus to be and to do what we could not be or do. You sent him to die our death taking all of our sin, all of our rebellion on Himself and bearing not just our sin, but the full, just weight of Your wrath and judgment. All so that we could go free, be forgiven, and be forever loved. And that, that in itself is amazing, but it would, have, it would have stopped very, very short of what we needed if He had stayed dead. And so... By raising Him from the dead, it was your eternal stamp of approval and acceptance of the work that He did on the cross. When He said, it is finished, it really was finished, it really was paid in full. The payment was good for all of eternity. But it's not just relegated to historical fact or inspirational reality the, the resurrection of your Son, Jesus, is meant to give us, moment by moment, real-time strength and rescue and hope and ability to live for you. May we come away knowing this in a better way today. Fill me with your Spirit. Speak through me by your Spirit. Overcome the, the pain that I, I've still been experiencing so that your truth can be clearly heard and grasped, I pray. We give you glory for all that will be done in these minutes. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Look with me at John chapter 11. John chapter 11. I'll be focusing first on verses 17 through 25. John 11 17 through 25. And I'll be reading from the CSB translation, just so you are aware of that as you follow along in your copy of God's Word. John 11, starting in verse 17. And the backstory of what we pick up on is that Jesus has been made aware. This is close to the time of His going to the cross, only a few days left. And He has been made aware that His very close friend, uh, Lazarus, The home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha is actually a home that was kind of a base of operation for Jesus. Whenever they were close to Jerusalem, they would stop at Bethany and they would stay there uh, for days, even weeks at a time. And uh, so this family, Lazarus, Mary and Martha, became very dear to Jesus and his disciples. And over the course of time, Lazarus became ill and the illness progressed. And it actually got to the point where he was dying. And news came to Jesus that things did not look good, that he needed to come quickly. But Jesus deliberately stayed behind when he heard that Lazarus was sick and even sick to the point of dying. He stayed behind. And the disciples were perplexed by this, and they didn't understand. He, he's so close to you, Jesus. Why are you not going right away? Why? We should go. We should go now. But he waited. And then when Jesus finally decided to To go, he said, we're going to wake Lazarus up. He's sleeping. They knew that 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 didn't mean just asleep. They knew that he was actually dead, and Jesus went anyway. And we pick up in verse 17, that he comes to the the area of, of the home. Verse 17, God's Word says, when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. In other words, that detail shows us Jesus could have gotten there pretty quickly. He didn't didn't have to wait. The, The waiting was not because of the distance of the journey. The waiting was deliberate because Jesus had something bigger in mind. Verse 19, many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother, And as soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, and we've all said something like this, I think, at one point, in one way or another, if we've lost a loved one. I certainly have. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died who's honest you you hear it don't you the raw emotion the, the anguish and the faith I knew I know who you are I know what you can do you could have prevented this it's in your ability Lord if you had been here my brother wouldn't have died yet even now in the midst of my questioning in the midst of my anger in the midst of my pain I know that whatever you ask from God God will give you then the Lord replies, verse 23, Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Present tense. The one who believes in me, the resurrection and the life, even if he dies, will live. The late J. Vernon McGee, host of Through the Bible, great theologian, pastor, commentator, commenting on this passage said, Martha believed in a resurrection, but it makes less demand upon faith to believe that in a resurrection future day we shall receive glorified bodies than it does to rest now on the assurance that they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. It is easier to believe that the the Lord is coming and the dead will be raised than it is to believe that tomorrow I can live for God. You see, although Martha knew from the Old Testament that there would be a resurrection from the dead, she didn't believe that Jesus could help her now. I think he's on to something there. I think that's where a lot of people live, in their their faith, in their spirituality. I think that's how a lot of people approach Jesus, the Bible, the truths and realities of the Bible. Yeah, I, I believe it as fact, I believe it intellectually, but I just haven't really seen it practically helped me that all that much. I think that's where a lot of people are. That's where Martha was. But that changed fairly quickly. We're going to jump ahead in the account to verse 38, still in John 11, look down or look over at verse 38. John 11:38. This is after Jesus as he goes to the tomb and he he sees the mourners, he sees all the the situation unfolding Scripture tells us that he was deeply moved in his spirit. That actually literally means he was angry. He was angry. What was he angry at? Well, that's another message, but quickly I'll tell you. He was angry, I believe, at the effects of sin on creation, the effects of the fall. I think he was angry at the lack of faith of those that should have absolute faith in him. And there were probably other things. But it wasn't just grief that moved him. Certainly that was there, but he was actually angry over the circumstance. Verse 35 tells us Jesus wept. Then verse 38, Then Jesus deeply moved again, and it's the same word, same wording there in the Greek. It means disturbed in his spirit, angry in his spirit. Came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. A picture of what would happen soon to Jesus himself. Verse 39, remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there is already a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? We need to hear that today too, church, because without belief in who God is and what he has done and what he will always do, without that belief, we will not see the glory of God. Belief in who he is and all that he is is necessary to be a recipient of or to to be a witness of God's glory. Verse 41, so they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you will always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this, so that they may believe you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. Isn't that a great account? Great, great account. Great story. A real, true story that we get to go back in time, as it were, and be right there, there at the tomb, hearing the stone scraping, rolling away, seeing the light coming in and the dust particles being moved, seeing a shadow starting to creep out of that tomb, hearing Jesus say what he did, the gasps of everyone around. But here's the really good news. If you're in Christ today, here's the really good news. Every Christian's name might as well be Lazarus. Every Christian's name might as well be Lazarus. If you have given your life to Jesus, if he is your Lord and Savior today, Whatever your name is, just, just call yourself Lazarus. And here's what I mean by that. In Ephesians chapter 2, and you're welcome to look at that with me or you're welcome just to listen. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, the Apostle Paul gives us what is, in my opinion, the most powerful section in the New Testament, of what it really means to believe the gospel and be changed by it. What it really means to be found in Christ, made alive in Christ, new in Christ. This is an incredibly powerful section of Scripture. Ephesians 2, 1-7, and it points to what I just said, and it connects to that story uh, of Lazarus actually coming out of the tomb, the fact that every Christian's name might as well be Lazarus. Here's why that's true. Ephesians 2, 1-7, I'm reading from the ESV. The Apostle Paul says this, and this is everybody's condition, yours, mine, everyone before us, everyone after us, you were dead, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is every single human being's condition as soon as they are born. We aren't born basically good. We aren't born already being morally right in God's sight. We are born, all of us, dead. Spiritually, morally dead. And dead people can't do anything to help themselves. Dead people can't do anything to contribute to the society of the living. They're dead. There's no possible benefit they can have or bring about. That's what we were. Outside of Christ. Apart from Christ. Utterly, spiritually dead in every aspect, in every way. Hopeless. Helpless. Verse 4, but God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Hang on a second. Great love with which he loved us. What did the first few verses say? We were dead in our trespasses and sins which we willfully walked in. We weren't just born into sin, church. We weren't just people that inherited a sinful nature and inherited the death of Adam and Eve. We chose it for ourselves. Willfully walking in the course of this world, the world that is in rebellion against God. And yet being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, God, perfect in in every way, holy, righteous, just, looked down at us, decaying in our sins, corpses that we were, and loved us. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He didn't wait for us to, quote, get better because He knew that would never happen apart from Him. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Look at this. This is just... Made us alive together with Christ. He reached down into the depths of our depravity and our spiritual death and our decaying spiritual reality. And he made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That little footnote says volumes. By grace you've been saved. Grace is something you could never possibly ever deserve or be worthy of and get anyway. By grace you have been saved. Verse 6, "...and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." Seated with him, that means the place of honor, a place of of authority that's alien to us, a standing, a royal standing that we could not ever be worthy of or earn. We were dead. We were in rebellion, in his love, in his mercy. He reached down. He rescued. He saved us. He made us alive with his son, and he didn't just make us alive. He seated us in the heavenly places, in the place of honor and royalty. Show me a God that does this other than our God. Why did he do this? Why on earth or in heaven would God do this? I mean, this just doesn't make sense, does it? This isn't how things work logically in our realm of existence. That people don't do this. This is not how life works. So why? And and certainly, certainly, don't you think the angels looked at all of this happening and were thinking, what is he doing? Why is he doing this? I think that's true because we know in Scripture that when Paul talks about the mystery of the gospel, he says things that even angels desire to look into, and it's beyond even them. It just doesn't make sense. Why did he do it? Verse 7 tells us, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It was all so that for all of eternity, everybody would look at God and look at us and look at the difference there and the way that that he treats us and what he did for us, the way that that should not should not happen. And it will point a giant light to his grace and his goodness and to his glory. So that there was, will ne- never, ever be, there will never be a time or an opportunity for us to look at ourselves and say, "How great I am." No, never. For all of eternity, the only thing from our lips, the only song we'll be singing, is "How great You are." And all of that comes, all of that comes from the power of Easter. All of that flows from the reality of resurrection. All of it comes from that. And that power and that reality is not something that's limited to a historical event, something that happened way back when. The power of Easter Sunday is meant to transform our lives every day. The power of Easter Sunday is meant to transform our lives every day. It's a transformational reality, meant to be experienced every day, not just a historical event to remember, not a seasonal holiday to celebrate. Don't relegate the resurrection to that church. The resurrection of Christ is what made Ephesians 2, 1-7 true for you. And it's meant to be experienced day in, day out, until He calls us home and then on into eternity. It's an everyday thing, transformational reality. Romans 6, 1 through 11 points to that fact, shows us that purpose. Romans 6, 1 through 11. The Apostle Paul there says this, and this certainly connects very well to what we've read together and what you've been hearing up to this point in this message. Romans 6, 1 through 11. This is from the CSB again. Paul says this, and it's a very good question. What should we say then? What should we say about all this? In light of all of this, what is the response to be? What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? In other words, we just, we just heard about the greatness of God's grace, right? Ephesians 2 1 through 7. I mean, you, you don't get a, a better explanation or a description of God's grace. God's grace is amazing and it's glorious and it's powerful and it reaches to the very depths of our spiritual death and it overcomes it grace is great and so what paul is saying here is okay so we've got this great grace of god does that mean we can just live however we want we can just sin and sin and sin because grace covers us grace overpowers all that so hey we don't have to worry about it we're secure in grace is that what he meant is that what grace affords us verse two absolutely not How can we who died to sin, which all of us did if we truly came to Christ, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 3, or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus, that's what happens at salvation, were baptized into Jesus. All of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that for the purpose of just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. We were saved By being united to Christ in death, so that as Christ rose from death, we too can, every day, rise from the spiritual death that we were saved from. So that every day we can walk in newness of life, resurrected life, resurrection power, righteousness that is not ours naturally. Verse 5. Here's the logic of it all. Here's how it all connects. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self, our sinful nature that we inherited by Adam and Eve and chose to live in, are, excuse me, uh, we know that Sorry, I I lost my place. Bear with me here. We know that our old self, that old nature, the carnal self, the the flesh that that does not seek God, that does not glorify Him, that does not honor Him, the, the flesh that is death that we needed rescued from, we know that our old self was crucified with Him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that don't you love all the so that's Paul's great for that so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin that's the whole point of it all since a person who has died is freed from sin now if we died with Christ we believe that we will also live with him Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, fact, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And here's where the practical application comes. Verse 11. So you too. That's you and me. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. Christians should be like spiritual zombies. Didn't think you'd hear that this morning, did you? You know, like The Walking Dead. I don't recommend watching that show. That's not an endorsement. It's an illustration. You know, we understand the the concept of zombies, right? The living dead. They're dead, but they're, they're still some sort of living thing. The living dead. And that's how it should be as it relates to our sinful nature. That's what Paul's talking about here. Everyone who's in Christ, truly in Christ, we should be Dead to sin, dead to our sinful nature, dead to our sinful impulses, dead to our sinful urges, but alive, very much alive, unto God and for His glory and unto righteousness. Dead to sin and all that comes with that, alive to God and alive to righteousness and seeking that. The walking dead spiritually. That's how we should be, that's how we should function. And here's the really good news about that. We don't have to do that. We don't have to live in that way and walk in that way alone. We don't have to depend on our power for that. Everything that we just heard from Paul here in this great, great chapter, Romans 6, all that we just unpacked there, we don't have to do that alone. The considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to God, the the considering ourselves totally done with the power of sin, freed from that power, and under the power of the Spirit so that we can live righteously, we don't have to do that alone. We don't have to depend on our power. Here's how I know that's true. It's not just my opinion. Romans chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. The Apostle Paul, still writing, says this, and I'm going to read this from the NLT. I just love the way the New Living Translation grabs a hold of what is expressed here. Romans 8, 11 through 12. This is in connection with what I just said about not having to do that alone. All that Romans 6 said, all that we are admonished to do and to be, we don't have to do it alone. Romans 8, 11 and 12. The Spirit of God, God the Holy Spirit, who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. And just as... If you have a copy of God's Word in front of you and you are one that doesn't mind marking, this would be a place to circle, just as, or underline it or something. Just as. In other words, in the same way. It connects back to what He said at the first part of verse 11. The Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, in all of His power, He lives in you, and just as God raised Christ from the dead, through the Holy Spirit, He will... Give life to your mortal bodies by this same spirit living within you. Hallelujah. Am I right? You don't have to wait for death to experience the resurrection life. Right here and now, in our weakness, the weakness of our flesh, the weakness of our human nature, the nature that still goes back to that sinful nature. You know, We, we like it. We, we want it. We're still drawn to it. And that's why if we were left on our own, we would be truly hopeless and helpless. We couldn't do anything that Paul said in Romans 6. But because of what is true here in Romans 8, because the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you and me if we're in Christ, the same Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead will give life to our feeble, weak flesh. By the same Spirit living within you. And here's the typical Paul connection. Verse 12. Therefore, so in light of that, therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. We don't get to say, and we don't have to say, oh, well, I guess this is just how I'm going to be. Oh, well, this is just who I am. Not much, not much hope in changing. No, no. If you're in Christ, that is an absolute lie. You have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. Why? Because you're just so strong and you can be so strong in yourself? No, because the very Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you and will give life to your feeble, weak flesh to do what you are supposed to do. That means the reason that many Christians experience a defeated spiritual life is because they don't remain connected to the resurrection power Christ provided for them. That's why. I mean, that's that's the question. If all this is true, then why why do I still have such a defeated experience in my Christianity? Why do I still live such a defeated life? The answer is because you just aren't connected to the resurrected power that is provided for you. The resurrection power. Is that true of you today? It's a hard question, but it's a question that needs to be asked. Is that true of you today? Are you one who says, yeah, I'm a Christian, but man, I, I just can't get away from this defeated spiritual experience. I'm just defeated all the time. I, I don't experience this power that I know I should, that I, that I agree with Paul about. It's mine. It's available to me, but I just can't seem to see it actually lived out and experience it. Well, it's because you have to remain moment by moment, day by day, surrendered and connected to that resurrection power. It's a connection thing. It's a connection issue. You know, so many times uh, we have issues with hardware and we get frustrated and we're maybe you know ready to just throw the hardware, whatever it is, out. But sometimes it's as simple as checking to make sure it's connected to power. And many times there's nothing wrong with the hardware. And that's how it is here. And listen, there's no shame. There is no shame in admitting your weakness. No shame in that at all. The only shame comes from not accepting what is available. That's the only, only source of, of shame, really, for the believer. So, here's what all this means. Christ's victory on Easter Sunday gives us power... For Monday's difficulty. That's, that's the blessed hope of the gospel. That's the blessed hope of Easter. That his victory, Christ's victory on Easter Sunday, that's what gives us power for Monday's difficulty. It's, it's what makes the difference out there in real life and in real time. Colossians 3, 1-3 says this. This is also from the NLT. Colossians 3, 1-3, the Apostle Paul says, Since... So here's fact. This is absolute reality. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ. If you're a Christian, that's true of you. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven. Where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Verse 2 says, Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you Died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. Isn't that great? You died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. That's a present reality. And Paul says, based on your present reality, you've been raised to new life with Christ, you're seated with Him in the heavenly places, so set your sights on that reality, and let that reality inform and change your present reality here on earth. And again, and again, we don't have to strive to do that alone. We don't have to do that alone. I'm going to close with this passage. Hebrews 7, 23-25, also from the NLT. There were many priests under the old system, the law, the Mosaic law, For death prevented them from remaining in office. But because Jesus lives forever, His priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, He is able once and forever to save those who come to God through Him since He lives forever to intercede with God on their we have. Praise the Lord. That means in all of our weakness, and all of our failings, and all of our failures, and all of our shortcomings, we have one in heaven who stands at the right hand of Almighty God and whose blood pleads for us. And every time Satan, the accuser of the brethren, levels another charge at us, the Father looks at Jesus and he sees the righteousness of Jesus covering us all of us. And he ever lives to intercede for you and me. There's our hope. There's why the resurrection matters now. Next week, Lord willing, we'll talk about how and why the resurrection matters later. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, the power of it, the relevance of it. Thank you for giving me strength to speak today, for overcoming the physical injury and limitation. I pray that above and beyond my voice being heard, I pray that it was the voice of your Spirit that was heard. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take this message, take the truth of your Word, and apply it personally to every person here, exactly in the ways you know they need it to be applied, all for the glory and the honor of the Lord Jesus, and in accordance with the perfect will of the Father.